design is about how it works, not how it looks. If you design, it's in that sense absurd is that I think there are so many quotes for this, but I think brilliant design is completely invisible. Yeah. It just works the way it's supposed to work and you don't even think about it. Hi, I'm Marius Klar, and you are listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season one of Gut Talks, double G, U, double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist and venture builder running two ventures, Gut, double G, U, double T and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch Gut Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at god.com, W-G-U-T, or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Margus Klar, founding partner of Brand Manual, a service and branding agency. He's also a speaker, teacher, and author. He's a Swiss, Swedish, Canadian, Estonian, currently living in Estonia, and you're an avid heavy metal listener, collecting all kinds of t-shirts you can ever imagine. And you're also a very competitive person. You're really good at ping pong. We still need to play a match because you beat me back then. So I still have that on my mind. And you contributed to working on organizational transformation and kind of were there when this digital nation was shaped, even though it's a small nation of 1.5 million people, but it's leading by example. And I think Europe should learn from it as well, many things. So, Marcus, it's a real, real pleasure to have you on Gut Talks. And how are you? Hi, thank you. Thank you for asking me to be here. I'm fine, despite everything that's going on in the world. Actually, most things are close to excellent. Cool. And yeah, I know you spend lots of time on planes and now you're stuck in Estonia, which is not a bad place to be, but I kind of get your frustration in a certain sense. You can't travel, meet people, but at least I see that this pandemic brought us back together after three years. How was your experience moving from Canada to Estonia? Was it an eye-opener for you? Because I know you have stories to share about the topic when everything, it was kind of a blank sheet of paper where you had so many opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I was going to university in Canada and I had absolutely no idea what I was studying. No interest for the subjects and the fall of the Soviet Union. And we sort of go, okay, well, let's go see what happens. And you get to, I mean, back then it was post-Soviet. So everything was gray and unfriendly and broke and a land of opportunity in a way. It was a big wild east. And what Estonia managed to do was kind of pull itself up by its bootstraps. I mean, it was literally a startup country from the get-go. And they had a really young government. They had a prime minister that was 33 and an elder statesman as a president who actually was quite tech-interested. And it was really, really cool. And that combination sort of got the whole country moving at lightning speed reintroducing a real currency and then looking at, hey, the internet, that's an interesting idea. Back in 1992, 
by 94, it was starting to digitize, actually. Things were coming online slowly. And I think it was in 97, they wrote a law that said that citizens don't have to give information that they've given to a public authority more than once. And this little law kick-started everything because it made bureaucrats responsible for going from one point to the other and getting stamps on papers instead of citizens, which nobody likes to do, obviously. So they started to digitize everything. You mentioned that you started studying something you were not really interested in. And this is something I wanted to ask you because I just remember it. What made you do what you're doing today. So what was this process of transition and exploration? Because the way you talk about, you know, service design and branding, you talk about it with lots of passion, but then initially you started off somewhere else. So what was this whole? Well, I mean, transition? I got to, at again, I mean, I came to Estonia, a post-Soviet country and, you know, a plant economy moving to a market economy. And I got into marketing and advertising and it was just because I was not Estonian, I sort of had a more marketing-y approach to whatever it was. You know, you grow up in Canada, North America, I mean, everything's advertising. So you learn to sort of pitch ideas and, and talk like in slogans and all that stuff. So I ended up in an advertising company. And after about six months there, we took all the clients, half the staff and started their own company, which is the way things work, I guess. And I spent a long time doing advertising, marketing, and getting you know more and more bigger clients, more responsibility, working pan-Baltic, working even in Scandinavia, working for multinationals. And it sort of got to this ridiculous point that you realize that advertising is trying to make clients spend a lot of time creating products that are sort of so-so. And then they come to an ad agency and say, make this shine. And it's an incredible waste of money because it's a me too product that, you know, there's 20 of them already. I mean, how many more Pilsner beers do you need on the market in that sense? And we sort of got this feeling that instead of spending a lot of money blowing hot air in advertising, why don't we start fixing the products in the beginning? So we can tell you how to make a better one, two, three, instead of making a nicer package at the end. And it was getting to that frustration that, you know, advertising doesn't solve problems. It just makes things look nice for a while and then they go ugly again and you have to polish them again. And that's how we got into this idea of service design and branding that, you know, building brands from the inside out, not from the outside in, not making logos look really nice and the company doesn't change, but changing companies to make their logo famous instead of famous logos for companies that are mediocre. And that got us to a completely different point of view on what marketing and really building brands and all of that is about and ends up being about the customer experience. And then you get into working with companies, transforming companies to become nicer to their own staff, better to their customers, delivering better customer experiences. And all of a sudden you're working for government departments trying to improve public services, which is a lot more fun, actually. Yeah, you touched on customer experience. It's something we're going to touch on, which is um, the main topic of the conversation here as well. But it was the trigger that made me start sending emails to start recording this podcast, actually. So I didn't ask you this question because I wanted to jump into the conversation a little bit differently, but who's Margus? 
That's a difficult one. Uh, compulsive, obsessive, half depressed, half maniacal, pedantic, airhead. I, a lot of different things all at once. A lot about OCD and not OCD all at the same time sort of thing. Okay, what kind of OCD? I'm getting me uh, curious here. Well, you should see my desk at the office. There's nothing on it. Not um, even a sheet of paper. I have my uh, shirt wardrobe organized along colors from dark to light. And uh, my car doesn't have anything in it except car. There is no bottles on the floor and nothing like that. So there must be some obsessive compulsive there. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just asking you, like, how is the new COVID kind of habits you know, having your hand gel all the time with you and having a mask all over with you. Were you doing those things before? No. In a way, in that sense, it's easy for me. I go with what the situation is. I don't worry. I don't fight situations. I mean, if it rains, it rains. If it's sunny, it's sunny. I sort of accept that. So mm -hmm. I work with that. But I guess there's, you know, I have this little bit of a fuck it all attitude as well. So you have to sort of rein that in because some people are much more sensitive and you have to accept that as well that mm -hmm. there are people who are literally worried and are physically worried and then there are people who don't really care that much so i do what i can but i don't panic about it i want to also tap into this you wrote a book which is one of my favorite books on service design and i'm not just saying it just to say it but <laughs> you know i think uh, i really enjoyed that book and then you sent me some other books as well you know after we met so I want to ask you, because you're very humble, and I realized that after spending three weeks mentoring in Turin back in 2018 or so, on the last dinner, like the goodbye party with everyone, by mistake, I found out that you're actually the author of this book. So you don't go about it. You don't mention it. Why don't you talk about it a little bit? It seems like a trivial thing. I mean, something I just did. The book idea wasn't just me writing a book. It was uh, what we considered good marketing, that uh, we create some content and we put it out there. And I'm really humbled to hear that you really like it. I'd love to hear that stuff, obviously. It makes my ego feel so much better, but it's just the thing. I mean, in, in a sense that you work, you do stuff, and then it's done. What made you write it? How did you start, you know, decide that, you know, I want to write this book? Because it's a very easy read as well. So you read it, but it's got depth at the same time. Well, I mean, the goal with the writing was actually purely technically. It was the time it takes to fly from Stockholm to London. If you're fluent in English, you should be able to read it in two and a half hours. So that was sort of the goal for that, because I hate long business books. And having read a lot of them, I always find out that when professors write business books, the first third is really good. The second third repeats the first third, and the third third is completely pointless. But they have to get the pages together. So we didn't have to do that. So we just wrote it as long as we wanted. But what made me write it was that we'd written these small handbooks that you got. And it seemed sort of, okay, but we have put together so many processes. We work with so many cases. We have done so much stuff. Uh, so my partners and I thought, okay, let's write a real book. So let's write meant that why don't you write so that's what i did and it's a lot of work it's 500 hours of writing and the first 300 go quite fast but that's when you think you're done and then you have to spend another 200 actually getting it done and that's actually really really hard and purely from a practical point of view it was we figured that 
it's a really good marketing gift. We have a product that we can use. We have an author we can point at. Look, this guy wrote it. You can get a signature. And it gives us credibility as a company and obviously me as a person. We sort of know what we're talking about. So why don't you trust us and bring us your money? Yeah, and you speak at different events anyway and so on. So you do that. But I have this other question. By the way, I'm going to be linking, you know, the links to your book and company and everything Mm -hmm. in the blurb. But how did you come up with the title of your book? What's the story behind? It's sort of a philosophy on that. I mean, like I said, I have a background in marketing and and my partners, when we started the company, we're, we're, you know, advertising design background. And there it's always that, you know, you get a mediocre or a so-so or okay product and make it beautiful. And it's spending a lot of money and the return on it is really, I mean, if the campaign runs for three weeks, you get six weeks of return and then you have to do it again. And it's sort of endless. And service design, I mean, improving the actual customer experience of the product or service instead of making it, you know, just prettier, actually, it keeps paying back itself all the time and exponentially keeps getting better and better and better and better. So it is sort of like that you can have a cake and you can eat it too, which is an American or an English proverb that this is something you can't do. You either have it or you don't have it. But in this case, by actually working to make the customer experience of a service better instead of spending more money on marketing you can actually have better marketing and better results all at the same time without actually spending the money so that was the sort of the idea behind it at least well i still need my autograph on that one but (laughs) (laughs) if i knew i would have gotten it with me back then but anyway um you work with lots of organizations, right? So mm-hmm. let's talk a bit about service design. And you wrote a book about service design, and it's very clear that there's no one single definition of service design, and we know that. But again, for the listeners, what's your definition of service design? Making things work the way people expect them to work. I like that. Okay. So coming from a design background as well, we tend to trust or listen to assumptions until we find another way. And we talk about instincts, about assumptions that are kind of connected and interwined in a certain way. But what about gut feelings in all of this as well for you? I think it's a shortcut in a way. Sometimes you sort of know what the right answer is, and then you have to go backwards to try and prove that you were right in the first place. And I think in many cases, when you get into uh, new situations, but you have similar experience from different organizations that you fairly quickly can sort of feel what the problem is. And then instead of you actually spend time just trying to prove that your feeling was right. And the thing is, 99 times out of 100, this is right. And one time out of 100, you're completely wrong. And everybody gets that at everyone during the process. 1% wrong isn't that bad. At the end, you would be like, it was worth going through it. Yeah, because, I mean, it's a learning experience. I think I can never remember his name. There's a uh, Hungarian professor, but he said that the learning experience happens in the space between being bored and being overstressed. So this medium stress level is what you need. So sometimes it's when things get too easy, you get lazy and your gut feeling gets lazy as well. So having this sometimes being wrong is actually good just as a learning experience that you don't get too comfortable with. You're always right. 
Yeah, it makes sense. I'm just trying to visualize what would be this medium kind of stress level. <laughs> I mean, I think the idea behind that was that if you're completely comfortable, you're not learning. I mean, there is also, I mean, uh, I don't remember what his name was, Kahneman. It was his family name. It was thinking fast, thinking slow. It was a book about, you know, how you know, yes. 95% of the time we don't actually think new thoughts. We just think what we used to think yesterday and so on and so forth. That you have to stress yourself to get to 96 and 97 just to start actually properly thinking. But you don't want to get overboard because if it gets too hard, you don't actually have the competence to make right decisions. But pushing yourself a little bit still gives you the opportunity to learn something during the process that you don't presume too much presumption being the mother of all fuck-ups as we like to say and have to tell ourselves every other month after something went south again yeah it's like constraints as well they help you dig deeper and get into the right direction going back into a little bit into clients work because we mentioned you know where you work with organizations and so on what are some of the frustrations you have if you have any that you see other businesses do you know from pretending they listen to their customers for example or to their employees voice and so on mm -hmm. basically being self-centered so do you have any story to tell well, i mean there's i guess lots of stories in that sense it's human nature in that sense that we presume that everyone in the room is like us and we had a uh, interesting project it was a state organization working with mentally stressed or physically stressed people. Some were catatonic, some were basically look like and talk like everyone else, except occasionally they flip out a little bit. And they wanted their client service. They call them clients because they're not patients and they're not residents. So they call them clients. Their client staff to work with them better. They wanted to have more interaction, get them out into society. That was sort of the goal. And we did a lot of work trying to figure out, okay, how can we help these client service people work with their clients better? But it actually turned out that they don't need our help at all to work better with their clients. Their problem was that they had so many administrative tasks within the organization, they never had time to work with the clients. So instead of helping them work with clients, we redesigned the administrative workflow and move that to one period of the days. And, you know, when you do something in a concentrated amount of time, you do it better and faster so instead of making it into little pieces all during the day. And everything was fine. And they were going to pilot this in, in a couple of clinics and, and get that up and running and everything, you know, was agreed. And then the final presentation happened where also the big bosses were right there and they know this is impressive and whatever. And next day they sent an email to all staff saying that we're tomorrow we start working this way without any piloting, without anything which of course meant it went the way yeah. it goes, you know, it yeah. didn't go anywhere. And then they start basically from scratch and then they had to fix a lot of miscommunication, everybody being pissed off at everyone else and so on and so forth. So there's so many occasions when management sort of, okay, we know what to do. Let's just do it instead of, okay, now you have to take it slow and get everyone back on board. Yeah, I'm sure you have many stories on that one. But if you think about it, how do you gain their trust as well when you go into these organizations where, you know, they say we want to do something, but sometimes it's just for the sake of it or to look good or to feel good. But in actual fact, there's this kind of resistance and friction to work with you, but also to go after, you know, you do what you need to do. 
and then to actually start applying and making changes. I don't know. I mean, if you not have any tips and tricks, please tell me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's different each time. I mean, there's no one recipe and there's no, you know, one way, but it's, it's lots of human psychology as well and behaviors and, and trying to get them on your side that you're not here to teach them or tell them what to do because they would know what to do, but it's just facilitating the process in a certain way. But I'm curious about your... Uh, I mean, we have a client that we work with in Germany and we've worked with them for the last, since last May, basically, give or take. The project in itself is supposed to end, give or take about right now, except it can't because we're in the middle of COVID, which has sort of made everything a little bit more complicated. But, you know, that's life. And there, the thing is that everybody sort of, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody sort of knows what the right thing to do is, except the way the organization is organized and the incentives for half the staff is organized, doing the right thing is not doing the right thing for themselves. So that's sort of one problem and trying to get that to be reorganized ends with corporate politics where people are saying one thing to your face and then doing the other thing behind your back. And in that situation, if you're from an outsider, in the beginning, you have actually more credibility. But at some point, as an outsider that's been there for a long time, you end up being sort of part of the system. And then trying to maintain your independence becomes incredibly hard. And I'd say, you know, in some situations, trying to get over that hump, it is really, really hard. But once we get the first small steps implemented and people can actually see that they have an understanding of cause and effect. They can literally remember, okay, we talked about this. Now, half a year later, we actually did something and something is really changing. That's when you get them to buy in. But if it's an organization that's hierarchical, which it tends to be in Germany and all those things, in the meantime, you drink a lot, basically, just to maintain your own sanity. It is very complicated. And the bigger the organization and the more rigid it is, the worse, or not the worse, but the more challenging it is to get regular people to accept that there can be a change. And the thing is also, they've seen it before. You know, change initiatives happen every six months anyway. So they've heard this story before. You just yeah. have to sort of prove to them that this is not a story. We're actually doing something. Whoa. Yeah, two things here actually tap into because once I was doing uh, user research in Paris and like one of the meetings was in one of the resellers, not going into details, but as soon as I crossed the door and went inside, the guy was like, hello, welcome, how are you? Oh, those consultants, they come to us all the time. Nothing changes. You're wasting our time again. And I think he went on for about 10 minutes. And then we managed to get to the meeting room and then he started again. And then you're like, you know what? You kind of understand, not because you want to understand, but because it happens, because it's just the way it is. And it makes me think of another thing as well. So let's jump into those two things. The first one is... Today, these titles of, you know, service designer, design thinker, whatever you want to name it, it's just buzzwords as well that anyone can stick on their LinkedIn profile. Some people try as well to say, we're doing this. So already selling it or using 
specific processes, but also creating them, can lead into not great results, which would kill the trust that you might have with a certain client only because this client's been through it with someone else and so on. So what's your take on that, on using titles to get jobs, but also maybe achieving in a different way or not achieving? I mean, when I was working in Sweden, I actually went and trained the company that on their website said that did service design. I'm working with an IT company right now that also has service design as part of their portfolio, but it sort of creates this dissonance in your head that, okay, what are we talking about? Why are you hiring me if you have this department? But it is what it is at the end of the day. I mean, for anything that isn't quantitative, You'll always have people that say things that are more or less bullshit. I like how you put it. That's the way the world is at the end of the yeah. day. We build our brands, our reputation, one job at a time. And at some point, there are people you want to pay a lot of money to because they get results and others that create hot air. Yeah. The thing is, yeah, I mean, my resolution as well was that it's just part of life and it's not just in our profession, right? And the nice thing about design and what we do in a certain way is that we all can do it differently. And the most enjoyable part is the process. Even when you go about abstract stuff and, you know, even university projects, that's the process is just, if you enjoy it and you don't just want to get, okay, that's where I want to get to because it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, the other thing you tapped into as well indirectly is when you're saying you try to gain their trust and they get lots of promises and words and so on. And it's kind of linked to social innovation as well and NGOs and projects like that because... If you go, let's say, to rural areas, they talk to NGOs every day, right? And different kinds of organizations, but sometimes change on the ground doesn't happen. So they get frustrated too. So what's your view on the role of design and designers in social innovation, and social responsibility as well in communities and countries beyond organizations? I sort of pushed the service design network to start doing the service design award and I've been part of that jury process now for five, six years. And we have a lot of entries that are social projects or, or social innovation projects in even in third world countries or poor areas or where they're looking for some kind of change is very fundamental. And I think designers can help in some places. In other places, you need engineers or you need just people with empathy or you need better government or you need many different things. But it depends on where things are happening, what things are happening about. And then there's the cultural context always. I mean, you have rural areas that are remote where social values may be 17th century feeling in terms of Europe and you have to adapt to that. I think as process designers or service designers, we can do a lot if we can properly empathize in those situations and we don't try to change culture, bring our culture that the modern way, just do this way. Why are you drinking the axe milk? I don't know. But a lot of the time, I think the mistakes happen when you try to import your cultural values instead of solving the problem. And if you try to import foreign cultural values, that's not going to stick. You just have to work on the actual problem and not presume too much. And you can see this in the entries for the Service Design Award, that the ones that really work just focus on a very specific little thing. How can we improve, I don't know, women's maternal health? 
never mind the situation, never mind politics, never mind culture, just in this village, what can we do? What needs to be done? What are the resources available? But the second it becomes something more where strangers try to push their agenda, then it fails, I think. I mean, it's like raising children at the end of the day. You work with what you got. You can't change that. And if you're trying to change it, you don't get anywhere. Yeah. And it reminds me as well, we tapped into this topic, I think in episode five with Luis Arnal, because the interesting part is because he comes from Mexico and I come from Lebanon and it's two kind of emerging countries. So there are things that we can relate to, although we're on different continents completely, just because they happen in those countries. You wouldn't see some of the things in Europe, but even Europeans who have been living in Europe don't even, like, it's unconceivable just because the way it is. So even in such projects, the culture, as you said, is a big topic, but even at the organization level, and I think that's what you do as well. And what is it that annoys you when people talk about design? Because I know you have a very particular way of thinking that makes sense, very concise and precise. So what is it that annoys you? What annoys me about design is when they talk about aesthetics, how it looks instead of what it does. I think Steve Jobs said it very well, you know, design is about how it works, not how it looks. If you design, it's in that sense absurd is that I think there are so many quotes for this, but I think brilliant design is completely invisible. It just works the way it's supposed to work and you don't even think about it. I mean, doors open and close. Somebody designed that. But when they don't open and close, that's when you notice that an idiot was designing this thing. And I think there's also, I don't know who said it, but you know, there's no such thing as no design. Every product was designed. There's just a lot of bad design out there. There's a lot of bad process design out there. You have to fill forms that don't make sense that somebody made a design decision. So I think that the idea that design is just about how things look is what annoys me the most. It's, everything is designed. Yeah, I think Dieter Rams actually said as well that it feels undesigned or something like that. That is memorable. But yeah, I get your point. Actually, you're bringing on in another subject, but it's true that especially when you're, let's say, a design mentor, people expect you to talk about colors and uh, fonts <laughs> on an app, right? Yeah. <laughs> bringing back some memories on that one. So is there anything we didn't tap into that you would like to say or you would like to wrap up on Nowadays, the most interesting work is working on public sector projects. And the reason they're interesting is because they're wicked problems. I mean, there's one project we're working on for a local government, and we're just doing an educational and mentoring project for the local government. But their challenge is how to reduce childhood obesity in grade school kids. So, you know, they come out of kindergarten, they go into first and second grade and their weight balloons. Why does this happen? What can we do? And then you're looking at what are the realistic interventions? I mean, this is talking about families and society and, and, and neighborhoods and all this kind of stuff. And it seems when you're working on this kind of stuff, it sort of feels um, significant. You're doing something real. And then you get commercial clients that are so much narrower. The problem is so much simpler. There, there is no wicked problem. There is how can we sell more of this stuff without creating greater environmental impact type thing, maybe. But at the end of the day, still, how can we sell more? Or how can we make more money, which is 
not exactly the same question, but when you get into these wicked problems, that's where I find that I'm in this uncomfortable zone that I have to learn. I have to start thinking hard again. That's, it makes it so much more fun. I don't know if, we, if that is something to touch upon, but I think that's the challenge that service design has to work with. And the irony was this, I think a couple of years ago when the first service design book came out, I was asked to write a you know one page, what do I think about everything? And I actually mentioned that I think service design should get into wicked problems. And I, I love the fact that we are actually there, that we're working on these kinds of complex societal issues that from a user perspective, that's never been done before on, on a systemic level in that sense. So, I mean, we can start solving these kinds of problems. Maybe we get somewhere else instead of the same thing happening all over again. Hopefully, because if you think about investing, there's this trend of impact investing, which might get to that level at, you know, when we say public sector, but it's mixed with private as well. So lots of funding will come into that. And kind of COVID is accelerating this in a certain way. People are talking more about it. So maybe. So I like the way you are wrapping all of this up. And um, where can we find you? www.thebrandmanual.com is the easiest place, I guess. And I'm on LinkedIn and, and Facebook and all those other places as well. So you can probably find me one way or the other. My kid did the project on me in school once and said, hey, I can find you on Google. Brilliant. I like that. Thank you so much, Margis. Thank you. Great episode with Margis Clark. We spoke about trust, public sector and social innovation, job titles, and what is annoying in design as well. Thanks so much for listening. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the LinkedIn group or the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.